Welcome to the Cinephile His and Fit Podcast, the tirade film movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm Will. I'm home, Johnson. That's well played. We're damn glad to have you folks. Ladies and gentlemen, this is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, in the end. We encourage you all to love what you love, but for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, if you do not know how to answer the door in the way Will did, you're not going to know the references of this movie. We're going to be talking about Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos. Uh, this has been recommended, I think, by me more than Will first, but we'll see where this goes. Our format is this. The recommending lover goes first. They get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their high-minded case. The hater follows with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth after that we'll open it up to 15 or 50 minutes of shared conversation <laughs> where the hissy fit really gets chippy put on your puerto rican accents get your big makeup to change yourself into lucio ball and let's go so no folks this is award season and we're getting here to sorkin's being the ricardos will are you where are you coming at with this i was just going to ask you the same thing sort of about sorkin because i think sorkin yeah. is one of those i don't want to say rare but it is it is very uh, like I said, not rare, but there are certain people in the industry that have that, oh, it's a David Lynch film. Oh, it's a Spielberg mm-hmm. film. It's this. Sorkin is one of those. Like you you kind of yeah. know, you kind of know what you're gonna get with a Sorkin project. Like the walk and talk, the the mm-hmm. whippy dialogue, the you know, interesting stories and and uh kind of mind-bending like social issue things that are going on that Very are just kind so. of a little, a little wacky. So I wanted to ask you what your take on Sorkin is. I'll give you mine. Uh, I mean, I watched the West Wing a lot. I enjoyed it. I I don't think it's like a masterpiece of television. Mm -hmm. Um, Sports Night was fine. It was funny. Um, I I watched that show that was like Saturday Night Live, like the behind the scenes of Saturday Night Live. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Sunset. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't remember either. I mean, it was fine. I mean, he's got like moments of like, you know, dialogue punchiness that's funny, mm-hmm. regardless if the show is bad or not. And yeah. when he's gone into films as a director, I've enjoyed films mm-hmm. that he's written as a writer, but like, uh, did he write Charlie Wilson's War? Did he write that? I, can't I don't know. We'll look that up in the notes we'll between up, the but, end of the 15 minutes. Yeah. But in terms of stuff that he's a writer director for, uh-huh. I have, he I have did. been, I have been at Molly's game, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven, which I was like, okay. and and then there's this one, which I'm mm-hmm. kind of like a little higher than me, but not not like so far from me. <laughs> All right. Well, the, I think I, I think the guy is brilliant. I think the guy has a style and a brand. I, I know it's become a brand, but I think he's got a level sure. of writing that no one else can touch right now. Now it's repetitive, where it's like we like we're saying it's become a bit of his own cliche. But until somebody can do what he does better, the guy's mm-hmm. the master at it. So I guess that makes me the lover here. I'll go first if you want. Yeah, please. That'd be great. All right. No, I'll segue right to that. I think Aaron Sorkin is brilliant. And I don't want to say everything he does, but like I said, he he does a style of writing that I haven't seen anyone else emulate. Maybe, oh man, maybe some, like a, maybe an art. Uh, maybe an Ianucci in terms of a foreign director who does some of the same satire level comedies like the death of Stalin or something like that, or in the loop. Like there's a couple of people who can write kind of on that level, but in terms of the walk and talk and the, and what 
the performances that come out of the actors that can play at that speed and play at that level in terms of like the writing content that goes with it. I haven't seen a better person, at least in this generation of 25 years, who can do it as good as him. And I will put Sorkin as a writer in terms of the walk and talking cadence and speed ahead of Tarantino. I know this blasphemy, but I'm that guy who would be like, I will take what he can write to what Tarantino could write, write. Because even with all the staccato and the speed and the the overpacked stuff that Sorkin puts into his dialogue, the man's done in two hours, unlike unlike the chatty Cathy of Tarantino who doesn't know when to quit. Mm-hmm. So when Sorkin now, when Sorkin stuff is applied by other directors who then take what he can do and hone it, the work is, it speaks for itself. I mean, you've got some legendary things there between a few good men, obviously the, the David Fincher stuff, like you have, I think that, well, the social network, of course, got him one Academy award. I thought Steve jobs was awesome. Moneyball's a solid, crazy, great thing. Charlie Wilson's war takes that cadence and walk and talk and throws it into a comedic level. And even the American president puts a romanticism, a romantic edge into what he can do. And that's kind of the cool thing of where I put praise into being the Ricardo's is we see the Sorkinisms, the Sorkin cadence, the Sorkin style applied to a period picture from a place of the screwball comedy, like Lucille Ball away from her screen persona, which is what we get in this movie. 90% of Nicole Kippen's performance in this movie is Lucille Ball off screen making this show, not being in this show. So if people go into this movie thinking we're going to get a I Love Lucy remake acted by Nicole Kippen and why doesn't she make her voice as high pitchy and this and that, or why isn't she trying to be you know, Lucy Arnett or, you know, Lucy, the character in the show and not Lucille Ball. When Lucille Ball is off screen, she is what you see here. She is all business. She is, you know, a producer and controlling person of her talent and of the show. And Nicole Kidman has the ferocity and talent to play that. You apply that with Sorkin's words and you got something special. And that's the cool thing is what my i don't want to say expectation because you know i'm that that kind of guy but once i saw sorkin attached to these actors and attached to this concept of obviously we know he's very good at behind the scenes of things whether it's behind the scenes of the presidency behind the scenes of a naval trial behind the scenes of all the tv shows he's done uh that this wasn't going to be a very difficult thing in terms of transitioning to it but as a director i'm impressed in that he's improving with each film with his craft that goes with it like camera placement presenting your actors you know uh, applying production design and some and some music and some different parts to it and this is thanks to the showiness of the show and where javier bardem comes in as desi arnez this is easily the most performance well just kind of i the most well-rounded movies of the threes he's done so far because you can say molly's game is just a a nice, you know, almost 70s new, you know, new age movie where it's just poker and seediness. And then Trial of the Chicago 7 obviously elevates that to a larger historical thing, but you're still kind of at a courtroom movie with a couple of protest scenes on the side. This, you have to have some exactness and some period detail that's a little different than what the liberties you can take with court and with 1968 history of Trial of the Chicago 7. And in doing that, I think he's made a really solid film. Is it it's we're talking oscar season where i think you've got the production you know detail here where cinematography costumes editing i think any movie that can edit a sorkin level of dialogue and the speed and clip of which this moves is special and it's i I don't think he should be there for best director i think being ricardo's an expanded field has a shot for for best picture i'll talk about javier bardem a little bit later but this is a place where nicole kimman comes to shine 
She's one of the best actresses we have now. She has surprisingly for me aged into someone I respect more than what I thought she was when she first came out. When she first came out, I'm like, oh, wow, this is just a a tall, good looking redhead who can do a few things and turn a few heads. She has completely shown in the last 20 years to be better than just a pretty face. The lady can act and she can lose herself in very different roles and in very different genres. And to play something as memorable as this, even if 90% of it is off screen from the thing we know of her, it's still pretty impressive to see her kind of put that on there and go. The nitpicks will be out there and like, ah, but she doesn't look like her. Oh, she doesn't sound like her. Well, that's where liberties are had to are, are there to be had. And the rest of it can kind of just play like, just let her go with what Sorkin can do. And you'll see good fruit that comes from it. So that's me. Nice. I, I was, while you were talking, I was looking at all of his screenwriting credits. And mm-hmm. it's one of those rare things on Letterboxd because Letterboxd always has like a trillion things that they've wrote for like one second, you know, like on there. Yeah. But I've seen everything he's ever written except for Malice with Nicole okay. Kidman and Alec Baldwin. So American President, Being the Ricardos, Charlie Wilson's War, A Few Good mm-hmm. Men, Molly's Game, Steve Jobs, Moneyball. Trial of Chicago 7 and the social network. I mean, that's a murderer's row. Of I agree. There. So, yeah. Anywho, I'll go ahead and uh, get my timer started here. But, um, yeah, you know, you're probably going to hate me for this, and many people will. Um, but like you said, there's there hasn't been a lot of people that can write like Sorkin can. The last person that gave me, like, a Sorkin impression – um, in terms of they had a, dist- a distinctive style to their screenplays and the delivery. And if you had good enough actors to pull it off, it would sound great. And if you didn't, it would sound awful, which I think could be the case with Sorkin. He's a little bit more high end and more prestige, so he can get better actors to say his words. you know. But uh, another person that reminds me of is Kevin Smith. Um, Kevin Smith had a very distinctive style. When you had somebody like a great actor that could pull off the dialogue, like a Ben Affleck or a Matt Damon, or, you know, I'm not saying he's a great actor, but Jason Lee, like it comes off really good. But then when you would have maybe an actor who's not especially trained or very good in that indie scene, it would kind of come off a little. Eh. Aaron Sorkin has obviously had a lot more hits, a lot more prestige, but it is rare to hear dialogue and be like, oh, that's Sorkin. You know, that's a Sorkinism. You know, that was, I, I feel like Kevin Smith was one of those. Some people can argue with Tarantino. I, I think he's a little overrated on the dialogue part. I think he's a great writer in terms of setting up situations and framing things and, and plots and stuff, but not a great dialogue guy. Um, but yeah, Sorkin is um, a unique talent. And uh, yeah, I, I, I guess my criticisms in the past, like I said, have kind of been the ups and downs of his directing and writing output because i really can't argue with any of the films i just listed uh, that he was a screenwriter for i mean i love steve jobs i know people were kind of upset about that one Moneyball's great social network's good few good men's great i mean there's i can go on and on being the ricardos is interesting it kind of hits that comfort level for me of being a film about Hollywood. I I love behind the scenes story stuff, especially like TV stuff. I'm not a big TV watcher exactly, but I find the history of television and the, the innovation of television, very interesting. Like I, I would rather, I mean, I know a lot about television shows from the past that I've never watched 
only because I like to read their history. Lucy, I Love Lucy is one of those. I know nothing about I Love Lucy. I don't think I've seen an, an entire episode. Um, I know about the greatest hits because it's very ubiquitous in culture, of course. You know, the chocolate scene and, you know, uh, the kind of the set and the Lucy, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's become ubiquitous in culture to the point where it's almost like when my kids say, "Here, here's Johnny. You know, they're referencing both The Shining and Johnny Carson without knowing they're referencing it. So I Love Lucy is part of culture. So there's enough for me to dive into this movie and go like, okay, this is interesting. And yes, there are some liberties taken in terms of the history um, of when all these events happened. But I found myself more, it was more of a comfort level thing than like, like than a great film thing. I was like, yeah, that was great. That was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, it's it's helped by the fact once again with a with a Aaron Sorkin script and director in this case he's got fantastic actors, um, but you know what? Uh, unlike some of the other films where you've got these heavy hitters, um, kind of taking on that dialogue. Like when you think of Charlie's Wilson's War, you got Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Hanks. You know, uh, when you think of Moneyball, you got Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill and You've got all these big names. What I like about this film is that, sure, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are great. I think they're great. I think Javier Bardem is the best part of this movie, personally, even though I, I know that there are some historical inaccuracies with his performance in terms of look and sound. I, I thought he was magnetic and energetic and addicting, and I just wanted to see more of him in this role. But what I really liked is that they let the... Just like in the show where the the lesser cast members or the writers, the producers are overshadowed by Lucy herself, all of the cast members in this show, not as big names, they get a chance to shine. Uh, Nina Arianda plays Vivian Vance. She was fantastic. She has great chemistry with J.K. Simmons. Tony Hale was awesome in a, in, a, in, a, in a pretty serious role. You know, he's usually kind of the goofy, weird guy. And he was very serious. Uh, Alia Shawkat, another Arrested Development alum was awesome as as the head writer um so there was a lot to really like about the supporting cast everybody just fit in really well so i would say that being the ricardos is a feel-good movie not necessarily a great movie if that makes any sense well done sir well done folks we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcast here on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. No, I'm with you. The supporting cast does really up this movie for me and it's the and it's the six, five people you mentioned simmons man does he not steal every seat he's in you know because he's got that repartee that can not just spin the comedy but spin the organisms so mm-hmm. but nina nina ariande as vivian vance and and yeah the 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 second girl from that show from the i love lucy is, is given a very nice arc to push back against the other things that are going on and, and kind of be a sounding board and comparative presence to obviously the big you know the big bull in the room which is you know lucille ball and you're right tony hale who does not normally do drama if you need another place to see him do a little bit of drama highly recommend folks out there to go see nine days uh it's a very tiny little sony pictures classic film that i'm going to put on a few mm. of my ballots and rosters for awards this year but it's a it's a it's a minuscule movie that no one's going to see with winston duke and zazzy beats and tony hale where go find that 
but yeah, Alia Shawkat is is amazing. Jake Lacey, who does like shitty Hallmark Christmas movies, is out here doing you know the whole Bob Carroll writing room kind of thing, and uh, you need him to kind of set up Alia's jokes, and it plays really well. And yeah, that's the nice part about this is, and I can kind of do the same hat tip that I did to trial of Chicago seven is yeah. Uh, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen is probably your big name who gets, gets away with the biggest speeches in that movie, Eddie Redmayne as well. But you have the smaller people in that movie also get some shine and some light where that's, it's, it's almost become a Sorkin thing where he's really good with ensembles. Uh, you go back to Moneyball. Yes, it's Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt will still stir the drink of that movie, but little pieces and parts that roll with him along the way make it really really good jack nicholson you know you know <laughs> his big courtroom scene of a few good men is great but you still got like kevin pollack and demi moore and kevin bacon doing really good work where the guy's really good at ensembles and i love when he can put a good one together and now that he's starting to put together his own he's making some pretty good choices oh absolutely yeah um I, I'll tell you what, I gotta, I'll address one of your p- points of, of favor with a point of criticism from me. Javier Bardem is a wonderfully talented man. Oh my goodness, what an actor. But as, as much as people are trying to kind of do the Nicole Kimmon doesn't look or sound like the Lucia Ball that I expect and the one from the TV show, it's even a larger case with Bardem. Now, to have Bardem play the... I don't want to say the Latin lover stereotype, but it's there, you know, to, for him to play a nice charismatic part and to sing and to dance is a really cool thing to see from Javier, who normally is playing super ultra serious parts, but he, but he is, you know, eight muscles too big and two octaves too low to be a convincing Desi Arnaz. Sure. Sure. And I don't see, I don't know. I guess I have to take it on the merits of what I'm seeing in front of me. Like, but he's so good. Because I don't know anything about Desi Arnaz other than the most I ever knew about Lucy was that they had Desilu Studios, which produced Star mm-hmm. Trek. That's all I remember about right, that right. most. So uh, I've obviously seen his face and I know a lot about it, but I, I wouldn't – it would be like – I don't know. I, I, I don't have no idea if it's accurate sure. or not. So to me, it, it rang true in terms of the – sincerity and the emotion of the performance it it gave me a very good idea of who this character is um and i enjoyed it but yeah i guess maybe if i dig back into the desi arnaz history i might be like well that's a little off that's a little off but Mm -hmm. um but no you're right the the nitpickers can get out there and i think it's pretty well known in if you were to do the history dive in this there's three big there's three big conflicts in this movie. Lucy is kind of named or associated with the whole house of un-American activities, red scare stuff. Uh, she's pregnant with her second child. And how do you show pregnancy on very conservative 1950s television? And there's the whole like, well, was my husband really loved me? Is there infidelity there? And how all three of those things come to a head in the same week of this show. And that's kind of the cool shorthand of this movie is that it really does take place in a production week of a single episode of this show, Monday through friday and it's kind of cool to see things condensed in that way but there is a lot of things packed in here that if someone were to be very nitpicky none of it happens at the same time in terms of years apart for these issues and conflicts but for a dramatization it it's kind of like you said there's there's a feel-good aspect to conquering these challenges Mm. yeah yeah so i guess i guess in the end and we talked about this on west side story also it's just like if i'm not familiar with it does the does the story work on an emotional level? And I think mm-hmm. that despite the fact that maybe these are historical figures that 
maybe could be matched up better. I think the story was well told. Um, Same here. I, I mean, it is a little insane that, um, and obviously this was um, dramatic license, but you know, I, I think it would have been insane if all three of these events happened at the same time, which they did not yeah. apparently. Uh, that would be like, I mean, I'd have a heart attack and die at that point. Oh, yeah, so, same here. But, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I found that interesting. There was enough tension in it. I think, mm-hmm. what did you think about, because the, you know, I, I was vaguely familiar with when the show was on TV. Okay. So um, when this is set, uh-huh. You, there's kind of that prequel element of like you kind of know that they're going to be okay. Like, yeah, were you yeah. Still, were you still kind of like, like was it still stressful? Did it still work for you? The tension, or were I, you kind of like, eh? I mean, they're going to get out of it. So I was still stressed because just kind of knowing the era of television and some of the like some of those like behind the music level of stories that we've or thirty for thirty in sports, like it wouldn't surprise me if lots of things went wrong always were wrong and were always dusted under the public view rug for mm-hmm. years. The way we hear about stories in sports, the way we hear about other stories coming out of music and even stories in the Hollywood industry where there's a st- something doesn't go on that long without troubles and tensions along the way where sure. I felt it to be very believable. Now, maybe not three, three big conflicts in the same week, believable, <laughs> but no, the fact that there would be co-star tension, writer's tension, uh, gender politics and all those pieces to it. I, I don't feel like they were trying to like ring any like modern bells. Let's put all, let's portray all these things back in the fifties to make some, make some callback to today kind of thing. I don't, I didn't feel like that was, overdone or overplayed like we've seen in other movies where like i know we talked about in our last dual show like they're ringing a me too bell like crazy in that movie now the historical story kind of calls for that in a certain level but how loud and how hard are you ringing that bell just to get looked at that you're ringing that bell this movie tries to play the women's role in the industry whether it's writer actress co-star and all that to a really good degree but doesn't do it in a oh look at me and how right we are kind of way well, that's interesting you bring that up because I've been trying to articulate this in my head for a couple of days since I watched okay. it. Now, my knee-jerk emotional reaction is to go, oh, Aaron Sorkin, you're so concerned about the men and they get their proper credit. And like, so my knee-jerk reaction, emotional response of the mm-hmm. hot take age is to be like, why are we focusing on the men? But then I thought about it more and I thought, this is actually a truly feminist movie. And what I yes, mean sir. by that is... Feminism, which people get confused with, is people think that women, people think feminism means that women should be better. It's not. It's about equality. So what I like about this movie, it's a true feminist script, is Mm -hmm. that you have that balance where it's like, yes, you have the female writer who is somehow in that time and age, the head writer on the biggest show on television. Mm -hmm. You've got a woman who has all this power through sheer force of will, you know, saying mm-hmm. my husband will be in the show. And, and, but then the, the, the movie also takes its time to give and forgive. If I don't remember the names, uh, I don't remember JK Simmons uh, character's name. Uh, yeah. William Fraley. Show. William Fraley. They give him time to have his own uh, authority and uh, authenticity. And they give, mm-hmm. they, they really treat Desi like you know like a true equal to lucille ball and i like that she has to fight for him just like she he fights for her in his ways 
So it truly, you know, at first, after I got through the knee jerk hot take reaction of like, why are we focusing on like men getting credit when we're in this age now where we need to be lifting up women's voices and stuff? I, I sat down for a little bit and I thought, actually, this is a very progressive screenplay mm -hmm. because it is equal to like it is giving equal time equal measure it's giving men the respect they deserve and women the respect they deserve in this industry like knowing full well that it isn't just it wasn't just lucille that created the show it wasn't just Agreed. desi it it was this community of people yeah these um, writers and the people who are in the right positions that's so true well said man yeah so i i was debating how to say it because i didn't want it to be like this weird <laughs> you know, this this is day and age. I mean, you, uh, you say the wrong thing, and it, yeah. you, don't, you don't mean it. But yeah, it's it's. I actually think this is one of the more. We were talking about the last duel. Like, I don't think it's as egregious of a Me Too thing as you do. I um, yeah. I don't okay. think it's that apparent. However, it is true. Like, it is very. It is very much a movie made for this time, where it's like, mm -hmm. hey, we're gonna get. I, I think there's a lot of art behind it. I think it's a great film, but right. there is a little bit of like. Um, uh marketing where it's like hey this is also a me too film guys mm -hmm. this this one is probably one of the most progressive socially conscious things that does not rub it in your face i agree where it is it is equal it, it gives everybody agency not just the woman over the men or men over the women or whatever like you know it, mm -hmm. it it's a very very positive progressive and not banging you over the head with it um i agree tale. No, to go back to your point about like, did, did you feel any spoilers or they're going to make it out of this certainty? I think one piece of this movie that does not work, and maybe this is Sorkin getting too cute and too much, is the framing device of the three older writers come back together, where you have like, uh, the actors are John Rubenstein, Linda Levin, and the great Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox! Yeah, I know, yes. right? So, so they, play, they play that writer's room with the, the Tony Hale, Shotcott, and Lacey characters in an, at an older age, reflecting on all the troubles that they've seen that this given week. I don't think that device works very well. They don't use it very consistently. It's like a, it's heavy in the front, it's heavy at the end, but not a lot in the middle. And what are they really going to say? I feel like the younger actors who play them in the room get all the stumps they need to present who they are and what they represent that I don't need to see them older. Like I, I thought it was a poor framing device that adds, you know, 15 minutes to a movie that's teetering over two hours anyway. Yeah. I also wasn't a huge fan of, so there, there technically is like three timelines in this movie because that's true. they do the three writers in the future or the present yep. or whatever you want to call it. I, I would imagine it wouldn't be the present either because no. I would assume they're all dead, right? They are all <laughs> dead. Yes. Yeah. So, so you've kind of got this weird present. You've got the current timeline of the movie during the recording. And then they do these kind of uh, flashbacks, like showing like greatest hits of Desi and Lucille's career. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm okay with that. But one thing that I, I, I think, and this is the, the actors are strong enough for this. And mm -hmm. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, unfortunately, but I've seen it in the past is sometimes I like the idea of like letting that character give you their history without showing it like like they okay. they have it they have it in their eyes they have it in their face they have it yeah. in in their lines of dialogue like i think it would have been better served at least from an acting perspective if instead of being spoon-fed like oh remember when lucy was almost a big star in maine oh, yeah so 
I would have been, and I think it would have been to Aaron Sorkin's strength as well in terms of his dialogue in a screenplay, if we had more dialogue scenes and longer scenes of them discussing like, God, it's just like, it's just like, uh, what was the name of the movie she was she was in that was a big critical hit, but... Oh, I don't uh, remember, but it's mentioned it was, in the movie. I know what you mean, yeah. It's called like a Sling Street or something, whatever. Like, Yeah, I'm going to look You know, it like if, if they said something like that, like, oh, it's just like Sling Street again, or, you know, like, and it's, mm-hmm. it's giving you like insight into them without like... Over exposition. Because, yeah, because I think one thing that, I mean, tell me if if I'm not the only one that does this, but I remember talking to my mom about this, but like whenever like a bio movie would come out or a biography Mm -hmm. in a book, I was always like dreading like the childhood (laughs) chapters or, you know, because I mean, I know that sure you want to get a complete picture of somebody, but at the same time you're interested in the subject for the reason why usually they are that subject. Sure. There's, it's nice to see people climbing to the top, but like, for instance, like I, I read Roger Moore's biography. Okay. Uh, I, I love Roger Moore. I think he's a great James Bond. Do I really care that much about him being a kid? No. Now, he only spends one chapter on it. And it is very interesting because he was alive during the Blitz in London and had to be moved around houses. And that's interesting stuff. But, like, no, he goes right to, like, here's how I started in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. that's what I was there to read the biography for is yeah. what was his life life like as an actor? And then what was it like, you know, as Bond and after? Mm-hmm. So that, even though this does touch on their history, this is an I Love Lucy movie about I Love Lucy. I don't necessarily need in full the Lucille Ball story or the Desiree Dennis story. No, I tell you what, if that also shaves shaves this down and keeps this tight, I'm with you there. Like, there's enough going on and enough dynamics that you can get out of just this week of the show. Like mm-hmm. that first, that first, uh, that first table read, which is the Monday part of the movie, where in that in that 15 minute scene, you can see without any extra history the the dynamics of who's at that table and who they are. Like Lucy and Desi are the boss. The director is there just to do shoot the damn camera. The co-stars have their repartee that goes along with, you know, Lucy identifying that talent. Cause like I love those scenes a little later where Lucy and uh, where Nicole Lucy and then William, who's JK's character, they identify with each other because they're like old Vavillian. Like they have that kind of same method mm-hmm. history of sorts of where they came from and how they see and 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 envision comedy and time comedy i love that they ha- speak that same language obviously with different you know accents and maleness and femaleness to it but like sure. that first table read scene is all you need to kind of get characters history popping out of their mouths like the contentiousness of the three writers and just where losing lucy and desi come to that table even that moment of pause of her like in her mind of like playing the scene out before it happens that's enough that's not even a flashback, but that's enough insight into what she is and where her thought process or her expertise of what she does that I don't need Mm -hmm. proof of what got her there where you're right. If you shave off the bad framing device of the old folks do less flashbacks and just stay in the moment of this week, there is enough content there to fill a two hour movie. Well, I'm with you. Look at the Vivian Vance storyline. Like Mm -hmm. I love that storyline the most. Are we getting any flashbacks to Vivian Vance's career? No, because we get the, we get, we get her conflict, mm-hmm. we get her history, and we get her possible future yeah. by just what she's giving us on the page and in the scenes. Like, 
like that would be if you had a flashback to Vivian Vance, like you know maybe she was in an audition. auditioning for that. Yeah, 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 and she didn't get it because she was too quote unquote fat or something. You know, like mm-hmm. like sure that that makes me understand her trauma more than I already did, but I already kind of got that already. Mm-hmm. You know, like she's losing weight because she wants to be, and she wants to be pretty and they're not letting mm-hmm. her be pretty. And she thinks she needs to lose weight. And you know, it's, it's, you don't an, need yeah. all this extra stuff to make yeah. an effective story. Like, yeah. And that's, and that's maybe Sorkin overdoing it on the writing page. Cause there's no writer here, but him, uh, this is not based on, a certain book or, or any kind of episodes. This is clearly something he's researched enough to put together and stitched himself where, yeah, that's a little much what's there is very good. I know we're talking about Oscar chances in terms of this. Uh, I'm, I think, like I said, editing uh, Alan Baumgarten, who does the editing, anybody sure. who can edit and, and chop and tune to Sorkin speed is a special kind of talent. Cinematography I thought was great. Like just, you know, creating the look and feel of these lots in these shows and, and shooting things in the angles and places that kind of put focuses on characters. And then yeah, production design, like this is some perfect period detail because I'm always amazed those movies where it's a movie of production of a movie where these movie cameras that were, that are shooting and making the movie have to like scale back in between old cameras and old lights and old stages. Like I always like, that's gotta be a complicated mess. I love when movies do that. So this is something that had tips to what people like. So I could appreciate that a little bit. I I am a little particular about that kind of stuff. I I feel like I really liked a lived in, not very apparent feel to it. Okay. Uh, When I say that, like, for instance, I I was talking about LA confidential, like Mm. nothing about LA confidential screams, Hey, this is the fifties. Like it just is lived in. Yeah, I this agree. and I actually just watched a movie which we probably won't talk about on the show, but uh, I watched a movie called Benedetta, which Paul Verhoeven directed, which takes place like in I don't know 18th century, 17th century France during the plagues or something. Okay, and it's yeah, they show people with the plague, and but it's so much about presenting the time period perfectly. Mm. It's almost like when you look at a picture of yourself from the 1980s or something, yeah. Like, it's not screaming. This is the eighties. Maybe like the shirt you're wearing, or maybe there's a poster uh-huh. in the background, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it so does this, in. so does this I, movie oversell it? I think this movie is a little too fifty. Like it's a little too fifties. Like, Hey, look all at what glamour. they're, look at yeah. what they're wearing. Look at what they're doing. Look at the soundstage. It's all immaculate. Everybody's dressed perfectly. Okay. Like, okay. I didn't, I didn't have the lived in feel that made me like really feel like I was transported to that time. I gotcha. When so, you see, yeah. when you see PT Anderson's licorice pizza, you'll see a lived in seventies. I think you're going to like, yeah. So like to me, and this is tough because I'm talking about classic movies here, but like mm-hmm. to me, like if there's a movie where I cannot tell when it was actually filmed, like to me, the ultimate greatest production design in the history. Oh, of I can't wait to hear is, this is dazed and confused. Ooh, because I const- uh-huh. I constantly think that film was made in the 70s when yeah. it was made in the 90s. Mm. That's because it is so lived in, but it's so natural. Like it, it feels so like I take yeah. 
You know that's, what I'm saying? I think that's a I think that's a that's a link ladder thing too. Like he mm-hmm. does that like his before trilogy. It like they're in Paris, they're in like all these beautiful cities, they're in Greece, but you never feel like oh, we're just there's like and there's no obligatory let's walk by the Eiffel Tower cuz we're in Paris. They're walking right. down curvy streets and little cafes and just sitting and walking and talking where there's a timeless and placeless feel even though they're set and made to be in certain locations. Yeah, and I think that um and this and talk about Linklater himself, it, it depends on how dedicated you are to it because he made another great film, I think, set in the 70s. It's considered a spiritual sequel to Days and Confused. I think it's uh, We All Got a Hat. What's it called? It's, oh, uh, Everybody Wants Some, the softball wants movie, them. the baseball movie. Yeah. But well, it's not it, really but, baseball. It's screwing around college on a baseball team, but yeah. Great but movie. That, but it's a great movie, but it doesn't have the same. Like, it feels like a film oh, intentionally that is, that is putting on. Right, but it feels like it's putting on the airs of the 70s, whereas mm-hmm. Days and Confused and L.A. Confidential is another one where I feel like if I woke up in that world, I'd walk out and there would not be – like it would be mm-hmm. – it would just feel real to me. Like it, it, this this one has a little artificiality to it that I'm okay. not totally comfortable you. with, but it's not like a horrible thing. I'm spending no. a lot of time on it, but I think with movies like this, what gets me into it is – wanting to feel like I'm in that world. And this one has a, enough of that distance, enough of that glamorous distance where okay. I'm like, Oh, this is a nice showy production, but it's not really, it's not putting, putting me in that studio. Okay. So for you, where do you put its Oscar chances? What, what, what things get nominated from this movie in your eyes? Well, I mean, just looking at <clears throat> Sorkin's writing, I mean, his career, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, social in the network, or, in the original screenplay field, is this a contender? I mean, has he be, written, right? has he written anything that has not been nominated? I mean, at this I know, point, right? <laughs> I mean, because of Social Network won, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Trial was adapted Sh- technically, right? Was Trial of Chicago Seven uh, nominated uh, for screenplay? Yeah, it had to be. Moneyball was, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, it, Steve mm-hmm. Jobs, I think, was. Yep. Based Molly's on Molly's game well. was. Few Good Men was. Mm-hmm. Charlie's Wilson War was. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I can't imagine it not getting a screenplay nomination just I'm because of the, of the Sorkinisms. Yeah, I think. I don't know. See, here's the thing. We we just talked about a prior episode. The other thing is, and this is where budgets come into play. How much? How much being the Ricardos cost? Do you think? I bet it's um. Just because how showy it is and being backed by something like Amazon, I don't think it's like an, an independent film. It's not under 25 or 20 million. It's probably a 40, 45 million dollar movie. Okay. See, My guess. That's the other thing, too, is because we were talking about West Side Story. Like, mm-hmm. West Side Story, um, it, the, the production design on it is so flawless of that time period mm-hmm. that when you compare it to something like this, which yeah, it costs a lot of money, but I guarantee you a lot of that went to the actor's salaries. True. You know, it it feels a little too glossy, a little too – you know, Amazon and Netflix have this problem in general where they kind of have this overly produced look to I them. I can see what you mean by that. So I think maybe it could get something in the costume or production design – Makeup, but I don't think it has. Right. I don't think it has a chance in hell of winning any of them. No, I, I think it I, makes the same with you. I think it makes the field, but it doesn't have a like. Oh, that's the thing that's going to win out of this movie. This is going to be like. I, I think this is going to be like one of those, you know, two, one or two nominated things. I think maybe if they want to do, I think J.K. Kidman. Simmons has a shot in supporting. 
Yeah. But, but I think know, the female fields are pretty busy where Kidman could make it, but if she doesn't, it wouldn't be a shocker. It wouldn't be a shocker to me. Bartum, I, that's, I hate That's these, a big field in best actor right now. It's a big field, and he's one of my favorite performances of the year, but yeah, it's too big of a field. Mm-hmm. They're they're not going to give anything to um, – uh, how do you say her name? Shockit? Uh, yeah. Well, I bet she's splitting votes with Nina Ariande if you had to make a supporting vote in this movie. you know. Those two are my favorite actors in the show because mm-hmm. I, pr- I like subtlety – a little bit more than I like out mm-hmm. there performances. My biggest example of that is to me, like in the Oscar history, anyway, one of the biggest robberies to me was uh, Sean Penn beating Bill Murray. Yes. Because uh, what I liked about Bill Murray was he did everything with barely speaking a line. He did everything through his face, through his motions and loss in translation. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they showed the clips, uh, when they were announcing best uh, actor and they were showing Sean Penn, yeah, Sean Penn is doing an amazing job getting held back by eight guys screaming at the top of his lungs, my daughter, my daughter. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like it's a showy part, yeah. That is easier to do to me than subtlety. So for me, mm-hmm. even though Bardem is one of my favorite performances because it's intoxicating, I think the likes of uh Nina Arianda and Alia Shockett, they they get they I hate to say this phrase because it's very popular right now, but they understand the assignment, so to speak. Agree. Okay. They they to me it's harder to do what they're doing and sell it. it. It's easier to play a Lucille Ball because she has so many outward physical qualities and mannerisms that you can easily replicate. Mm-hmm. That I think it's easier to mimic that than to capture what it's like to be a female writer in the 1950s on the biggest show in television and to constantly be challenged by your male co-writer who is not yeah. funny at all. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. It, that's a harder part for me. And and like you said, with Nina Ariana as Vivian Vance, she doesn't get the benefit of flashbacks. She doesn't get Agreed. the benefit of harder scenes. For so, sure. So I like performances like that, but A, I don't think the Academy will nominate them. Mm-hmm. And even if they did put them on the short list, like you said, I think they'd both be fighting for the votes against each other. So. I agree. No, I, I if, to sum it all up, I think in an ex, and here's the thing: in an expanded Best Picture field that can go up to nine, I could see a movie like this slipping in because of the Hollywood factor Hollywood that we talked factor. about. You know, yeah, yeah. But but no, I, I think I think I think Kibben's got a shot in the field, not a shot of winning because she's won before for better things, but uh, she's got a shot to make the field for actress. I still think J.K. Simmons. I think he's a guarantee for best supporting actor in a, in really? a, in a, in a for, to final five, not to win, but to make the field. Yeah. And then, yeah, screenplay for Sorkin. If there's an outlier, it's maybe hair and makeup, but we got a pretty busy year even with hair and makeup too. So, well, you never know because they always short those categories. It's always like, I know. I hate, it's like, I hate that. That's the like, we've expanded everywhere else. Give hair and makeup a full five nominees, not three. So yeah, if, if hair and makeup is doing the only three nominees thing, it won't make it. If it's doing five, it'll be there. Now in my fictional Oscar world in which Ooh, I've added, I love it. I love your fictional Oscar world. Well, in which I've added a few categories, including best stunts. Now we're talking best ensemble cast. Yes. This would be this would be a shoe in for a best yeah. ensemble cast. I, I, I'm with you on shoe in too because to me, ensemble, and this is overdone, like when we get to the Screen Actors Guild Award, which gives best ensemble, mm-hmm. it's not who collects the most stars. Like obviously a front runner just on paper would be a movie like Don't Look Up. 
on Netflix with DiCaprio sure. and Streep and Hill and just a huge cast of people in it. But mm-hmm. no, for me, it's what movie has a cast where, like you said, they know the assignment, everyone works together and achieves their assignment in a very group teamwork kind of way. And this is the kind of movie where, yeah, Nicole Kim is a huge name. Javier Bardem is an Oscar winner. And everyone else after that, I guess we have to say J.K. Simmons is that good. But everyone after that might not be the mightiest, hugest resumes, but they're damn perfect for the small part they had to play to make the whole machine run. And I love ensembles like that. Um, my, so that might, you never know. Yeah. That might end up going to Sorkin because I'm taking a look at the list. Mm-hmm. Last year, The Trial of the Chicago 7 won the Screen Actors oh, yeah. Guild for best ensemble. I mean, you had some heavy hitters in there too. There's a heavy hitter or two in there, but but at the same time, not an A-lister. I can't call Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, and I guess we have to say Mark Rylance A-listers. Yeah. They're all they're all B they're B-level guys, but they all do their stuff great. Oh no, right, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have to say uh, a little shout out to my own group. Um I'm a I'm one of the directors and founders of Chicago Indie Critics. We are a, a recognized awards voting body and you'll be happy to know we have a best stunt category and we have a best ensemble. Oh nice. Yeah. yeah, I'm taking a look at some of the other ones. I mean, like Parasite beat out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You would think on paper, Once Upon a Time in of Hollywood. Course, big time or, thing the, too. or the Irishman, you know, yeah. would have it because of the big names. Black Panther but, won, three billboards outside Ebbing, mm-hmm. Hidden Figures, Spotlight, Birdman. Yeah, American see, Spotlight, Spotlight is like one of those perfect ones for me where, yes, Michael Keaton is a big name, but after that, everyone's, you know, and Mark Ruffalo has the Marvel stuff, but everyone is a cog in a perfect wheel there in a, in a movie that's not too big, not too small, but every part matters from the sleazy, sleazy <laughs> thing to the smallest little, you know, all those little interviews in that movie, like the interviewing witnesses and interviewing, like no one's sore thumb there, you know. I know this might be weird, but. This that might be 2015. I'm just looking at the award winners. That might be one of the best non-star years because you had Spotlight, oh, yeah. you had Spotlight, Beast of No Nation, The mm-hmm. Big Short, Straight Out of Compton, and Trumbo. I you think that's still, a solid year. And if you go past that, you have like Creed, Room. You have uh, Mad Max: Fear Road was that year. Like I think mm-hmm. oh, that's 2016, but. To, I, I I talked to people like when we were doing best of the decade a year or two ago, 2015 was the best year of the last decade, in my opinion. I know there's mm-hmm. some years in there that are good, but top to bottom, I know it's not the starriest, biggest year, but combining quality plus all the blockbusters, 2015 was the best year of the last decade. For me. And so, so yeah, but now we're our, drifting, in, my bad. In our, in our, in our imaginary Oscars in which imaginary we should give it on combo, I would give it to that. However, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I mean, Trial of Chicago 7 in terms of Sorkin, at least if we're talking about Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. he's got the pull. He's got the – because, I mean, I'm looking at that year, 2020, okay? You yeah. had – well, Chadwick Boseman was nominated twice, which is awesome. But you had Trial mm-hmm. of Chicago 7, which won. Then you had The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, and One Night in Miami. Yeah, like, great cast. To me, the Trial of Chicago 7 is probably – last on my list of those five mm-hmm. uh in terms but of an ensemble cast but right no if i'm out of those five i'll take one night in miami like it might not be the largest like 12 person ensemble but the four sure. people you need to be good are really good oh man they're awesome that was a great yeah. but anyways uh <laughs> yeah being the ricardos uh so yeah um yeah i i i gave it three and a half on letterboxd i i was i enjoyed it it, it passed the time in a comfortable way mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it didn't wow me, but it didn't bore me. Yeah, same here. I think, this I is think probably, 
The pedigree's there. Where I'm a Sorkin mark, so this is probably a four out of five for me, where I round my three and a half up. I'm right there. Gotcha, gotcha. And I'm surprised you didn't give me any hate on the Kevin Smith uh, comparison. I, uh... No, I, I, I think the thing for Kevin Smith, and I was going to say something, you're right. Uh, no, Kevin Smith completely fits that bill where what the his style of dialogue and his style of delivery and scripting is different than his contemporaries. Why he gets no love and why he probably gets more shit than he should is because it's comedy and nobody respects comedy and that sucks. I think, I think the closest he ever got was chasing amy was on the short list at the academies yeah. i think that's i would have he's ever got i know i would have loved to give dogma more love because like oh, that's a ballsy script too oh crazy you, you know here's another here's another funny thing i just on the kevin smith note real quick mm-hmm. you know kevin smith used to be so respected as a writer and he's not respected anymore which no, sure is whatever, sh- i don't know how he yeah but, but he was so respected at one point that remember when it was rumored that he secretly wrote goodwill hunting for mm-hmm. matt damon and ben affleck yep. that's how that's how big of a writer he was in the True. indie scene i mean he people used to think he wrote goodwill hunting now if you ask somebody they're gonna be like oh he's the guy who does he-man and does all the pop videos on youtube but mm-hmm. you know like he was he was big enough at the time maybe not on the level of a sorkin of course but you know he was he had a distinctive voice and i'll always appreciate that so yeah anyways so being the ricardos i think check it out Definitely. All right. Follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast. Also, find us both on Letterboxd. Thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a 25YL media podcast brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, so we do affect that tomato meter. I mean, technically only Don does because he's the only <laughs> Rotten Tomato critic, but I get to. Hop on the bandwagon there. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts, and we're going to have great guests in 2022, guys. All available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows.